this Advent and Christmas tide at Kenilworth Union Church where we've been preaching this sermon series called Catechetical Christmas Carols. That is to say, Christmas carols that are more than pretty tunes at Target, but also really a compendium of some fairly serious and sophisticated Christian theology, including the one we've sung just a moment ago, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and we'll sing to a different tune in just a moment, one of the 6,000 hymns Charles Wesley wrote in his prolific life. There are 11 of his hymns in our hymnal, and this is one of our most beloved Advent hymns, so let's look at it. And I've chosen to read Psalm 74 for us to think about this morning, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Psalm 74. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you acquired long ago, which you redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you came to dwell. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in your sanctuary. All the upper entrance they hacked, the wooden trellises with axes. And then with hatches and hammers they smashed all its carved work. They set your sanctuary on fire. They desecrated the dwelling place of your name, bringing it to the ground. We don't see your emblems. There is no longer any prophet, and there is no one among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? So you don't need a seminary education to guess the historical context of Psalm 74. It was clearly written to capture the anguish of a defeated nation lamenting the loss of home, pride, and sacred space. Maybe it came from a Jewish POW carted off to Babylon to sweep floors and clean latrines for their conquerors. Or maybe it was written by one of the heart-sick homeless pawns left behind in Jerusalem to weep atop the smoldering ruins of what was once a magnificent temple. How long is the psalmist's plaintive plea? Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? How long, how long, how long? The sad complaint of any sufferer pushed past the limit of endurance. That phrase, how long, appears 58 times in the Bible. Sometimes God, God's self is the speaker. How long will you people persist in your poor, pitiful perfidy? How long before you return to godly ways? But more often, it is the chosen people themselves who are lamenting God's prolonged absence and lingering silence. How long will you ignore us, God? How long will you leave us to our own meager devices? And of course, even today, it's one of our commonest prayers, right? How long before I laugh after I've lost my life's love? How long will I have to wait for the results of this biopsy? How long before I find a job that will support my family? 
How long before medical science catches up with this disease that might prevent me from meeting my grandchildren? How long before I find my soulmate? I don't want to live alone. I want a partner. I want a family. How long will my family waste away in this Turkish refugee camp? How long will the Wolverines languish under Buckeye supremacy? Zero and eight. One and fifteen. How long? It's the common prayer for those of us who wonder why God is gone and when God will return. And so every Advent we sing Charles Wesley's beloved Advent hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Born to Set Thy People Free. In that simple couplet, Father Wesley tells us two things about the one who came down to Bethlehem and who will come again. Father Wesley tells us that Jesus is a liberator, but also that Jesus is late, right? Come thou long-expected Jesus. Jesus is late, 600 years late. Psalm 74 was written around 587 B.C. God's people waited 600 years till that nativity in Bethlehem. That's a long time to wait. But then he comes to set us free from whatever cripples our flourishing or confines our existence in narrow, suffocating prisons, whether literal or figurative. And to live into this existential experience of justice denied or freedom delayed, I spent some time this week thinking about those three guys from Baltimore who were released from prison after 36 years in prison for a crime they did not commit, right? You saw these articles, right? In 1983, a 14-year-old student from Baltimore was murdered for his Georgetown starter's jacket. And the police instantly focused on three 16-year-olds who'd been seen on the school campus right before the boy died. But they weren't involved, nor even present. With no evidence, and despite several eyewitnesses who told the police that someone else had pulled the trigger, a jury convicted these three then 16-year-old kids to life imprisonment. I wonder how many times over those 36 years those 16-year-old boys, now 53, cried that prayer. How long, O oh God, how long? When she took office in 2015, Baltimore prosecutor Marilyn Mosby started what she called a conviction integrity unit to investigate problematic convictions. These three guys were the sixth, seventh, and eighth people freed from prison after false conviction. The average time these innocent people spent in prison was over 20 years. But we live in a world that's getting better and better. The United States is a waking up to the problem of these shoddy investigations and false convictions. There are about 50 exoneration or innocence projects around the United States today. The University of Illinois has one. The University of Chicago has one. And all of this made me remember my most interesting classmate from my time at Princeton Theological Seminary in the early 1980s. Jimmy McCloskey was interesting, first of all, in a small way, because he was 37 years old when he matriculated there. The rest of us were all 23, 24 years old, fresh out of college, 
But Jim had already served a stint in the Navy. He'd been to Vietnam. Then he started a very successful career as a business consultant in Tokyo and New York. He'd been raised in a Presbyterian church outside Philadelphia in his youth, but he'd set his religion aside when he went to Bucknell University. And then at the age of 37, he realizes that his life is flat and meaningless, so he decides to quit business and matriculate at Princeton Seminary, of all places. No idea what he might do in the future. He told his boss he was quitting to matriculate at seminary, and his boss said, I didn't even know you went to church. And Jim said, I don't. (laughs) Now, all seminarians have to complete two units of field education before we graduate, and most of us worked in local congregations in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. But Jim decided to become a student chaplain at Trenton State Prison, where he met an inmate who claimed that he did not commit the crime that he'd been accused of. And Jim believed him. And so when Jim graduated from Princeton, he set up a little office in the town of Princeton where he began to receive letters from inmates who insisted they were innocent. Jim had been trained as a businessman and later as a theologian. He'd never studied what it meant to be a private investigator, but that never stopped him. Jim called his exoneration ministry Centurion Ministries. Do you get the reference? That Roman centurion at the foot of Jesus' cross who looked up up at the crucified one and said, surely that is an innocent man. Thirty-five years later, Jim and his centurion ministries have freed 63 falsely convicted inmates. Do you read John Grisham? 33 novels, a book a year since 1991, 300 million copies. John Grisham's latest novel, The Guardians, is about an Episcopalian minister, also a lawyer, who devotes his life to freeing the falsely convicted. Mr. Grisham says his novel was inspired by his friend, Jimmy McCloskey, my Princeton classmate. Now, many of my classmates from Princeton have done wonderful things for the church in the last 35 years, but none as wonderful as Jimmy McCloskey because he tries to imitate Jesus who was born to set his people free. Now, the realities constricting our own freedoms are, I hope, not nearly as dramatic or traumatic as those. But if you have ever prayed, how long, Lord, how long, where are you? That long-expected Bethlehem child is God's promise and pledge that God is not gone and that we are not alone. Neither Caesar, nor Herod, nor empire, nor centuries of wrong could stop him, not even death. As Frederick Buechner puts it, faith is a way of waiting. Never quite knowing, never quite hearing, never quite seeing, because in the darkness we're all a little lost. There is doubt hard on the heels of every belief, and fear hard on the heels of every hope. And many holy things lie in ruins because the world has ruined them, but faith waits even so 
because he was born to set his people free. 